0: Thank you. Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast where we discuss common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. I'm Lena. I'm Matt Miller. I'm Matt Henry. And I'm Mark. So before we begin, it's important to let people know they may hear birds. Maybe a screaming fox. I was going to say fox. A bus driving, but yeah, there is a fox out (laughs) here. I know, that's why you said a screaming fox. In the occasional cracker crunch.
1: Possibly because there's cheese and crackers. Yeah. And I I don't really care for the cracker, but... (laughs) The cheese. No, we're we're recording outside, all that smacking. shit. Smacking caloogas, yes. Yeah.
0: So uh, I'm sure they're all
1: thrilled for that.
0: <laughs> and what we call a Wisconsin heat wave.
1: 50, uh, 58. Yep, that's right. And it's almost June. May 25th <laughs>
0: or whatever.
1: Yeah. yeah, yesterday was hot. Anyhow. So what are we talking about? All right, so we're going to deal with the idea of limited atonement, and we want to deal or try to bring some clarity to it because... It's probably the most debated, frustrating thing when you get into a discussion on what's called, commonly called Calvinism. So what we wanna do is talk about what actually happened on the cross, because that's all we're talking about. When we talk about limited atonement, which by the way is not a term a Calvinist really likes if they know their history. That was foisted on us by Jacobus Arminius, or the Remonstrants, actually. Is but, that how you pronounce it? Mm-hmm. I think believe so we're always debating I always did remonstrance
0: answer. I'm not saying it's right it just
1: well you know what you you do it how did I say it? I don't remonstrance remin- see I do it more the African where the uh <laughs> the syllable is emphasized at the beginning yeah but who knows it doesn't matter. The remonstrance. Actually, now I'm starting to think that's how I say it. <laughs> so anyhow, that thing. And <laughs> we were uh, basically given the term limited atonement. Uh, but what the real question is, is what actually happened on the cross? And I can say that if anyone ever wants to do some research on that, it, it really is quite fascinating, eye-opening, as you look at the various denominations like a Wesleyan-Armenian tradition and you start to look at what do they think happened on the cross. What was the atonement? What did Christ actually accomplish at that time? Um, it's eye-opening because most people try to argue for a penal substi- uh, yeah, penal substitutionary atonement, which we've talked about in a previous podcast, um, without realizing they can't and then not hold right. to either universalism or yeah, that's right. some limited aspect of the atonement. So that's what we're going to try to do. Um, I want to quickly debunk some of the quick things that people say. That uh, It's like, so he only died for the elect. Sure, he, yes, he did. But that doesn't mean that his death was not sufficient to save everyone. Of course it was. Um, it, but not everyone is saved. But it does re, uh, say that Christ's death is effective for those who are the elect. In, in other words, it actually does something for those whom Christ came to save. It's that specific group, and I wanna really emphasize that because we're gonna draw it out as we go through our passages. There's a specific group of people that Jesus Christ died for. And you you can like it or not like it, but the scripture is not <laughs> hard to understand. Yeah, But I do know it's um, emotional, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you've suffered a loss in your family, a beloved mother, grandmother, uncle, whatever, and you know they weren't a Christian, and you're like, so he never even had a chance. He never, you know, got God didn't send his son to die for him or something. Or it's how, how do you tell people to come to Christ, you know, because usually we're appealing to their emotions, right? You know, Jesus died for you. Yeah. Won't you yeah. let him in your heart? Yeah. That kind of an idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um,
0: I saw this meme the other day that said, Jesus loves you so much that he died for you, knowing that you may never love him.
1: Yeah, oh, that's. Yeah, yeah well, we dealt with that actual uh, view oh, of the atonement where he stretches out his arms and he dies. And it's, it's designed to show the depth of God's love for you and how serious he is about sin and draw you to himself. And won't you, seeing that love, come yeah. to him? But it, it's not grasping. That that's, not, that's not the primary point of what God was doing. Mm-hmm. He wasn't trying to just show people he loved them. He, he is demonstrating his love to his elect, but that's, again, that's not the point. So <laughs> we're going to um, ask three basic questions. Um, what, for whom, notice that good grammatical, for <laughs> whom did Christ actually die? Then what did Christ actually do on the cross? And then finally, why do not all people go to heaven? Those are legitimate questions. Whether you like our topic or you agree with us is a separate issue, but those are legitimate questions everyone should ask. And now all we're going to do, like we do with most podcasts, is we're going to look at a bunch of scripture talk about them. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so, yeah, we, uh, let's begin by talking about then um, just some basic points on right, limited atonement. Right, right. So first, we're going to argue that the Bible teaches that Christ actually and we talked about this, but bore away the sins of all God's elect. And when he did that, he ensured two things. One, that they would be brought to faith through a new birth. And then second, that they would then be kept in that faith for all time. Yep. But it's something actually happened, not potentially happened. Something was accomplished. Yeah, he did something. Yeah. And then that would be applied. Yeah. Um, So additionally, if this is true then, then we must begin uh, to acknowledge that in some way the death of Christ was limited um, if he actually accomplished something, something then is limited in that by its very definition. Um,
1: I, mean, I was just gonna say, that's not hard, that's not even a hard statement to say. Right. Um, and yet, how often do we talk to people who think Christ did something on the cross in the way of dealing with sin, but then they say, well, that doesn't limit. And it's like, yeah.
0: yeah. And, and we we would say it has to, because the Bible is very clear that not all people are saved. Right, There will be some who go to hell. Um, and, and so that's often missed by opponents or people who just have a maybe a visceral reaction to this idea. Um, but every view of the atonement, except for universalism, is essentially limited in some way. Right, right. Either it's limited in what
1: he actually accomplished, or it's limited for whom he died, it's or yeah. it's limited in the type of sin that he took away. Some way limited, very simple,
0: but important. Yeah. Um, Second, we're also gonna argue that the Bible clearly shows that Christ's death was very specific in its design and in what it accomplished. Um, You know, So Christ's death was not to vaguely die for everyone throughout time, as we've been saying in various ways. Um, I think sometimes we can get really sloppy when we talk about the the fact that Jesus died for sin, um, because we have to ask and then answer the question, what does the word for mean? It means something. Yeah, but in most people's minds, it's just kind of a, word yeah you know he died for me yeah okay what's that mean and and when we're talking about that Jesus died for sinners I mean you have the essence of the gospel and so it's important to get it right and figure out what what the heck we're talking about um, Christ's death accomplished exactly what God intended to um, that's an important one he, he actually purchased a people for himself
1: yeah
0: um, we see this in Revelation 5 verse 9 um, you know, this is in contrast, and again, we've said this already, but to the idea that Christ's death makes it possible um, to be saved and forgiven of sin, but only if we believe. So as if somehow the belief is the the grounding condition of salvation. Um, you know, so in this view, all that's needed for salvation has been provided by Jesus' death, but it's entirely dependent upon someone's willingness to repent and believe in him. So, you know, receive him, invite him into your heart, so on and so forth. Um, so, it's no small thing and it requires some careful thought. And we, as mentioned, have already given some views on the atonement. And in fact, if, if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to that maybe before you go on further with this episode so that um, it'll help bring some clarification for you. So we wanna show some exegetical evidence and basis for the idea of limited or um, you know, limited atonement and that it is truly focused in nature in terms of what Christ accomplished on the cross.
1: And, and before we get into that, I'll, I'll just second what you uh, and, and echo that. Um, it's really important that they have a basic background of how the church developed the idea of atonement, how people thought about it throughout the uh, history of the church. So they really do need to listen to that because if not, they're jumping over some necessary foundational work um, that uh, will hinder their ability to track with us here. So mm-hmm. we're, we, we want you to listen. We love the fact that you're listening, but go back and listen to that one first and then come and list, listen to this. So with that...
0: Yes. So let, let's talk about... Um, we're going to talk about limited atonement in two ways. So we're going to first try and show the purpose of it or the right. purpose of Christ's death. Right. And then we're going to show the result of, of his death through various passages. So you want to start with yeah, and all,
1: what we're all going, what we'll do is we'll just go back and forth with various passages, and we want the people to try to concentrate on, on what the passage is actually saying, not what we'd like it to say, or how it makes us feel about it, or if it's scary or anything else or disturbing. But literally, listen. So, first of all, we're talking about the purpose. Um, in Matthew one twenty one, it says that she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Now we all know that passage, but then for what purpose? For he will save his people from their sins. Not he hopes to or mm. wants to or plans to, but yeah. he will. It's it's not asking or putting this in the potential
0: realm. It's an actual statement of fact. Yeah. Luke 19:10 for the son of man has come for what purpose? to seek and to save that which was lost. So this isn't indicative, it's a fact. It's, right. it's a matter of biblical truth. He has come for a very specific purpose to both seek and not hope that they come to him, but to seek them and then to actually save them.
1: Yeah, that that second yeah. half is so key. So it's not hopefully right. get him saved, but he's going to do it. Uh, then 2 Corinthians 5.21, and I just... Uh, my cursor too much. Uh, here it is. He made him. Uh, the Father made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin. So again, one of the purposes of His death is to become sin, take our sin upon us, on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So again, He He took on our sin. That was one of the purposes. Not not show how much he hated sin, which is one of the other views of atonement, or to show how much he loved. But here it was to literally become sin on our behalf, in our place. Um, so if you don't believe in limited atonement, in what way does he take on the sin of an unbeliever who's in hell? Mm-hmm. That's the question yeah. you have to mm-hmm. ask because they're being punished right. for what? Their sin, Yeah, which he took away. So uh, yeah. it's, it, that's an important point. What's...
0: The next one. Um, Galatians 1.3, Paul, uh, there is beginning grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, for what purpose? So that he might rescue us from this present evil age, and then according to the will of our God and Father.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there you go again. Yeah. First uh, 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement, uh, deserving full acceptance that Christ, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Among whom I am for most of all. It's raining, isn't it? It is. Like a 3% chance of rain.
0: <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say. Well, the recording quality is clearly different because Raindrops ra- we had a rain delay. kept falling on our heads. Yeah.
1: And so they may hear some thunder in the background, but we'll pick up where we left off. So you left off with Galatians 1-3, right? I did. All right. So 1 Timothy 1.15, it says, it's, it is a trustworthy statement, statement, statement deserving full acceptance that Christ came into the world, or Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came, among whom I am the foremost of all. And people, again, will say, well, of course, we believe that. Well, did he come in to actually save sinners or potentially save sinners if they're willing to allow him uh, Right, an exercise of
0: the will. Um, how about the Titus passage? Yeah, Titus 2.14, who gave him, talking about Christ, gave himself for us, for what purpose? To redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. And so there's a very specific people that are being spoken of here. And it's something, again, that he actually accomplished. This is why he came and he did it. And the way he did it was by redeeming us first.
1: And as a result of that, purified us. But, but it's not just general, it's a people for his own possession, right? Right. So those are, those are several of the passages. There's more, but those are key ones that would just simply describe the purpose.
0: Uh, what about the result? Yeah, so Romans, so here's the result now. Romans 3, 24 and 25, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, who God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Okay, so what was the result? We are justified.
1: Right. Not, again, potentially. Actually, that is the end result. Yeah. Uh, now, how it's going to be effectively taken is when we believe. Faith. But, but that's a, another podcast of why anybody actually believes, yeah. and we'll get into that. Um, then Romans 5.10 says, for. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. So, when were we reconciled to God? Through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So, Paul is looking backwards and says, We were enemies and we have been already reconciled. How? Through his son's death. Yeah. Not once we asked him into our heart again, it actually got accomplished. That was the result of his death. That's that's pretty crazy what he's saying there. Yeah. And now our neighbor's alarm goes is
0: off. <laughs> this is a great idea. Oh, we're crying <laughs> out loud. Whose idea was this? Oh, we gotta get oh, oh, <laughs> And then there's a child. <laughs> <that> <laughs> it's just, just a popped out of bed. Out here. Like seriously, like like soaked.
1: <laughs> this is just ridiculous. It should have cooked steaks. It's the red button. Is that a funnel club?
0: (laughs) Here comes the squall line. Yeah. So attempt number three. Yeah. We just had a horn go off and now we're starting again. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. We were making some incredible points and all of a sudden the neighbor's uh, car home just decided to go. And they could not figure out how to get his turn off. No, no. no. That went for a good minute. Okay. So (laughs) 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So again, He He reconciled us to Himself through Christ. It's something that happened That's on the a cross, result,
1: right? Yeah, right. Uh, and then Galatians three thirteen, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So what was one of the results? He became the curse for us. And as a result, we are redeemed from that curse. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Again, it's not potential. It's not he's going to try to redeem us. It's actually accomplished.
0: Yeah. Colossians 1, 21 through 22. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you where in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Right. And again, it's not emphasizing what we did, that
1: when we believed or something like that, it was, no, he, when he died, he did that work of reconciliation. Now we appropriate it exactly. in faith. Yeah, And so we do need to deal with that issue on another podcast. But yeah. all we're trying to show people is something actually was going on. <laughs> okay, so, so we captured just some key passages that talk about the purpose that He came, and actually what He did, the result of His death on the cross. So now, let's talk a little bit about John's Gospel. And the reason is, John's Gospel is the one that everybody appeals for, you know, for God so loved the world. Um, and and they, they try to make it somehow not, our, uh supporting the nature of the limited atonement, but it doesn't at all. It's actually very powerful. In fact, I have a funny story, maybe. You want to hear it? Let's hear it. Want, all right, yeah, so sure. <laughs> we always got the edit button, so. Yeah, so I had a professor. I was getting ready to take this uh, church. And I, I asked him, I said, what, what book of the Bible should I preach to first? And he, he said, well, your, your church has some troubles, right? I said, yeah. He said, well, then just preach the Gospel of John. He says, you can't get in trouble preaching through the Gospel of John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah you can yeah, you get can. a lot of trouble. <laughs> and it's like, wow, I can't believe he told me that because I'm, I'm into like chapter four and already people are angry with me by the time mm-hmm. I got to chapter six half the church was gone. So oh, man. anyhow, um, we, we do want to look at John 6. And I'm going to just take people. We're not going to read the whole uh, passage. But I want to take people through some key points he uh, makes there. Because this is that famous place that he has just broke the bread and miraculously fed the, the thousands. The next morning, they all find him because they want breakfast. And that's where he then turns it up a notch. And in verse 35 of chapter 6, he says, I'm the bread of life. Uh, So you're missing the point, guys. You you think you just want this bread, but I'm the bread. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, if you're going to stop right there, you're like, see, so there you go, Matt. You have to believe and come to him, and then you're no longer hungry. You're no longer thirsty for the things that really matter. And he said, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And now he turns it up and it becomes very, very troubling for these people. He says, all, notice that word, all, not most, some, or uh, hopefully, it's all that the Father shall gives me shall come to me. That's an absolute statement, is it not? Mm-hmm. He's not playing with that. It, and notice that the Father is the one who's actually giving me Yeah. Or giving him all of those people, and they will come, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So he has this confidence that he's looking at this mass of humanity, and in that mass are some who are part of that all that the Father's given them, and he knows they will come. Um, now, he's going to explain why. He says, for this reason, in verse 38, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So, The next question would be, well, what's that will of the Father? And the next verse answers it. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, not one, but raise it up on the last day. So everyone that he has ever been given by the Father shall believe and shall come and they will be raised up. He can't lose them because that's the will of the Father. Um, And then he goes on, he says, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on that very last day. So then he gets into the issues of uh, being the bread, the Jews are grumbling about it, and he picks it back up in verse 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So now we're not just talking about the Father giving him, these people, but here he's saying the Father is the one who will draw them to him. Mm. That's why he knows they're going to come. Yeah. Because who's going to resist the will of the Father? Uh, not the ones that God has ordained to come. And so he then continues to uh, talk about this. Uh, that they can look at the rest of uh, the passage. I'm going to skip down to verse 47 Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. And Again, if you want to take that all by itself, you can come up with all kinds of doctrine. But within the context, who's the one? I'm going to, I know you're not ready for this, but who are the ones who will believe in him? The elect. Right, why? Or how would John were to hear? Those who come to, or the Father has given them, right? Yeah. So all that the Father gives to me shall come to me or believe. In fact, when you read John, when he says, come to him or love him, or follow him or believe in him he means the same thing they're just interchangeable in in jesus's uh, terminology so now uh the jews are starting to get more and more anxious they're starting to argue um and he says this down in i think it's verse 65 for this reason well it says in verse 64 but there were some of you who do not believe why for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. So he's not even full. He's not there like, I'm hoping you'll come. Yeah. I'm dying. Can't you see how much I love you? It's, I already know who it is, and I already look at this crowd, and I see how many. And then he said in verse 65, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me, not one, no one, unless it's been granted him from the Father. Now you take that whole thing in the context. The Father has given them some, and they will be raised up. They will believe because they were drawn by the Father. And they cannot come unless God is the Father has granted it for them to come. This is horrible for some people, but for me it's encouraging because I have confidence in my evangelism.
0: Yeah. When I'm
1: preaching the gospel, I know that at some point, if they are the elect, they will come. They will believe because the Father's given them to His Son. Now, as a result of this, verse 66 says... Many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. That's not loss of salvation. That's yeah. a person who then is rejecting mm-hmm. the limited atonement. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and no, I'm not saying everyone who doesn't believe a limited atonement is not a believer, but these guys are hearing him say hard words and they don't want that. So, very, very important passage. I encourage the listeners to sit down and just let the logic of the text take them through. So that means they have to pay attention to those little words for and
0: but and things like that. Yeah. Um, In the gospel of John's riddled with passages like this, um, chapter 10 and verse 11, Jesus is speaking. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So right there, he says the sheep, isn't that everybody? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, no. (laughs) Um, But what we can say is that there are sheep. That Christ died for yeah. uh, uh, for the sheep Our people yeah yeah so he, something's happened not a, not a possibility but something's happened and so the natural question and it arises well who are these sheep right. just everybody everyone who who may respond by faith or something like that um, well he gives the answer in fourteen through eighteen he says I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me so now he's immediately taken the broad statement the sheep and he's narrowed it mm-hmm. to his sheep yeah. yeah there's a knowing here. Yeah. Even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep on behalf of them. I, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will come become one flock with one shepherd. Now, do you think this is not off topic, but do you think this is a Jew Gentile issue? Yes. Yeah. So I have other sheep which are not of this fold that this is in reference to Israel or Jews. Um, but he says, "I have others who are not of this world." In other words, they're there; they're a reality; they're not yeah. potential. Yeah, um, they're but, actually but out there. But
1: it, but <laughs> it's a future event, right? Right. Yeah. What's even more cool is, did Christ ever go to the Gentiles? Aside from like the Samaritan and, and the occasional, did he actually go? No. no. No, he did. In fact, he actually told his disciples, "Don't go to the Gentile or the Samaritan; go to the house of Israel." Yeah. Um, and so. How will they hear his voice? Because it's guaranteed they will hear his voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So how are they going to hear it? They're going to hear it through his body, the church. Yeah. As, as we preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, they hear the voice of Christ. And that's why a person that can be sitting in a church and also one day it all makes sense. Well, mm-hmm. it's because they heard the voice. They they heard their, their
0: Savior. Yeah. It's a cool passage. Yeah. Well, go ahead and finish. I think it's down to 18. Yes. He says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. Devotionally, it's just a neat one because it talks
1: about how the father, or why does the father love his son? Well, one of the reasons he gives here, because he of the son was willing to lay his life down and then take it back up, um, which is just humbling because I I wouldn't want to become sin (laughs) on on the behalf of sinners, um, but my Lord did. Um, So that's another passage. Uh, In John 17, um, this is called the high priestly prayer, or I like to call it the Lord's prayer, because this is the actual prayer he does just before he dies. And again, he says this, so just pay attention to the what's the key points here. Jesus spoke these things, He said it's written, and lifting his eyes up to heaven, he says, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh. Now notice that to all whom you have given, so there's that limiting factor again, all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. So what is eternal life? This is eternal life, he says, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. What's that work? To redeem the people that the Father has given him. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you. This gets into that whole nature of what mm-hmm. did he empty himself of yeah. in Philippians 2, um, He says, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Not they were going to become yours. They were his already. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Now, he's talking about the disciples here, but only 11 of them, because he already knows that Judas is a betrayer. Uh, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And so, here is just this whole prayer that he's praying, not is in a vague, general way, but for his people, mm-hmm. whom the Father has given that, and and he knows that they will believe, and some of them already, in fact, have believed because they are the ones that the Father gave them.
0: Yeah. I mean, in other words, he, for lack of a better phrase, he's a good Calvinist because <laughs> the reason he's praying is he because he knows that they're out there. He says, uh, what's his reason for, why am I asking on their behalf? For this reason, they are yours. In other words, he right. has the confidence that there are some out there who are yes. not yet
1: part of the fold and, which then we can go right backwards again to John 10. I, I have other sheep, not of this fold, and they will hear my voice and they will come. It's John is incredibly focused on emphasizing that Christ, Jesus is the Christ and that he has come to do the will of his Father. The will of the Father is to gather together and to purchase out of the enslavement to sin those whom the Father gave him. Mm-hmm. And they will believe and they will follow and they will be saved.
0: So just
1: a incredible, incredible passage.
0: Yeah, a similar one um, further, a little further in John 17 in verses 20 through 21. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, again, those immediate disciples there, but for those who also believe in me through their word, meaning the disciples, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Right. And then, Finally, the last
1: part in uh, verses 24 to 26, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so again, he's emphasizing, you've given me a a, a body of people and I desire that they be with me in all eternity so they can see my glory. and all of this is built off of everything that came before in his prayer, in John chapter 10, in John chapter 6, and even in like John chapter 3 and chapter 1.
0: Um, but we just don't have the time to do all of those. Yeah. So what about... So with, yeah, obviously with this conversation, there's a lot of problem passages. So someone listening may say, well, what about this verse? What about that passage? And there's common problem passages, which are, are good passages to bring up because they really do create... A seeming problem or a contradiction to what we're saying, um, and so the first one would be John one twenty nine. Yeah, right. So it, it says the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, "Behold." So this is John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Um, now, on the surface, oop. Yeah, world. everybody, gotcha. the world. We win. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, But here really, I mean, and this gets in, and we don't have the time to develop this either, but into how how John uses the term world. Yeah. Um, And it's multifaceted. Um, But the term world focuses not necessarily on the totality of mankind, just all people everywhere at all times, but rather on the broadness of Christ's work that, and we've seen it already in like John 10, um, that it's not just talking about Jews, but then Gentiles, that is non-Jews. So this now expands to the world, but particularly in reference to to Gentiles there, but not saying every single person right. who's it's ever not, lived. Right. And we know that for a fact because Judas isn't going to heaven. Right.
1: Um, and he's not going to be saved and he, his sin is not going to be taken away. Um, but it's also important for the readers to know that John is a, a very Jewish book written to the Jews. And so this is a shocking statement that John is writing because a Jew is reading this. They're the first ones that would have read this. And they're seeing not just Israel, not yeah, just the Jew. Turn the world it's, upside down. It's the yeah. whole world. And, and so he, they're, they're right away at the very beginning of his gospel hearing that Christ's work and the intention of the Father sending his son into the world is not to just get rid of the Roman rule, but to, but to redeem people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what we hope for.
0: Yeah. Furthermore, what he says in this verse, notice he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a very important phrase. Um, he's, he's, he's literally taking that sin upon himself and then bearing it away so that it's no more. And so to argue that this is true for all humans for all time would require us then to be talking about universal salvation. Yep. So if we're saying he takes away the sin of the world, well now he's taking everybody's sin away, and so the people that are in hell, now this is double jeopardy. Yep. Which is not just in nor just it biblical. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> yep. And
1: I'll throw one more thing in there. Um, in other words, what you just said is they would on the the people on the other side would maybe accuse you and I of saying, okay, well you're adding. Things to that term world that doesn't mean every human being, but yeah. it rather it means Jew and Gentile. And we, our, our rejoinder would be just simply this, fine, we'll accept that, but then can you accept the fact that you're adding something to the text too? Because you, unless you believe in universal salvation, he didn't take away all the sin. He couldn't have. Right. And, and if, if, so if you're going to read into it, if you believe or something like that. It's not bound up in the text at all. Right. It's just behold the Lamb right. of God who takes away takes the sin away. of the world. It's, it's that simple. So when people are arguing for this, listen for what they're adding or assuming that is underlying a text rather than just simply what the text itself says. Yeah. Um, I'm going to let you do the uh, John 3.16 because you were talking about a kind of a geeky but very important point.
0: Yeah, here's where people are going to check out. Uh, no, they're not. <laughs> um, so, well, John three sixteen. it's that famous verse, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that who shall ever believe in him shall not perish, but have every everlasting life. Um, now, what's interesting about that passage is that there, there's two that's in, in the verse. Um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. In English, it looks the same. Yeah. Um, but underlying the English, uh, the terms that, even though it's translated as that in the English, both ways, there's two different Greek words there. Right. Uh, the first one um, creates an independent clause. So if you like grammar, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but what that means then is the main point of the verse isn't that God so loved the world. That's not the main point. That's dependent. That's actually introductory. Yeah. It's dependent on the next phrase that that he gave his only begotten son. So the main point is that he gave his only begotten son. Well, for what reason? Well, because he loved the world. That's the point. But then there's um, the second that, which is showing um, purpose. Purpose. Yeah. And so it shows the purpose then why he gives his son. So the result of God's love, now we're
1: in an independent clause, Mm -hmm. is... He gave his uh, only begotten son, right? That's yeah. the first one. And then there's a, a purpose for that. Why did he give his son? Because he loves
0: us? No. Because he gave his son. That and he, the, Yeah, that whoever believes in him, aren't, they're not going to perish, but have everlasting life. So in other words, who who is the world in verse 16? It's the ones who are believing in him. Yeah, yeah. The ones who are not perishing, but have eternal life. life. Yeah. Um, but it's, the main point is he gave his son for them. Yeah. These believing ones. Yeah. Along with that also, the
1: it's not whosoever. Um, right. The old King James, whosoever will, whosoever will. I've had right, that right. thrown in my face so many times. Literally, is so that all or each of the believing ones mm-hmm. would not perish. Um, <clears throat> and it's emphasizing the idea that there's a specific set of believing ones, and they're the ones for whom the Son was sent. Exactly. Yeah. And so, John 3.16, instead of disproving Lumen atonement, actually... Is a Solidifies very powerful one, yeah. but you gotta, in many ways, let the text really say what it says, rather than what we look at simply on a casual glance. first blush. Yeah, yeah. Gl- glance, and that's how too often it's taught. Um, and again, it goes back to the weak pulpits um, that that exist.
0: Yeah. So the result of, of that passage is showing that faith doesn't, faith isn't the thing that saves no. people. Um, rather, faith is simply the instrument that's used to appropriate that salvation for this right, specific yeah. group of believing ones. Right. Um, and so the death of Christ was the actual means or grounds then of, of salvation, but for those believing ones, not just the right. world in general so, terms. So when people say, yeah, so what you're saying then is we
1: don't have to evangelize. If they're elect, then they're going to heaven. No. That's the reason we evangelize. Right. That's yeah, actually absolutely. the reason we evangelize. They're out there. Because they're out there and they're going to appropriate this by faith. Yeah. And we
0: have that confidence.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so it, oh, it's such a powerful passage, and we're treating it so quickly. Uh, I really encourage people to go back and think about it and read it. Um, powerful. Yeah. And so, then the...
0: Oh, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, what's another one?
1: First uh, Timothy 2, 3 through 4. Uh, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. So... How are we going to deal with that? Well, again, all by itself, you can say, well, I guess in some way he was the savior of everyone um, and he wants us to be saved. But now the Arminian or the one who rejects limited atonement is going to say he desires him to be saved, but only if they're willing to believe in him or let him or however they're going to phrase it. Um, I would argue all men is, again, a qualitative rather than quantitative, meaning it's all sorts of men, not just Jews, not just rich, not just powerful, not just wise. It's wise and foolish, simple, uh, poor, and, uh, poor and wealthy, powerful and weak, um, Jew and Gentile. And this is the point that Paul brings out over and over again, that yeah. the church is made up of people redeemed by Christ, and they, they go from all walks of life in every uh, background. Yep. Um, also, the word desire, it's a very specific Greek word. It speaks of a wish or desire. It's not ever used in the New Testament or the Bible to speak of his expression of his sovereign will. It's, it is it is showing an emotive aspect, um, and you can't take it beyond that. It's just, this is his desire and not just describing a sovereign expression of his will. So, it's it's a good passage to see that God is, in fact, emotional. His love, his care for his creation is not false. He's not Cold and impassive, um, but it does not. It when you really look at it, it it's not really going to make a strong argument that Christ uh, is dying and hoping that everyone comes to salvation. Yeah, uh, another one in First Timothy.
0: Yeah, First Timothy four ten. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Okay, another story.
1: Go, ahead. 25. I am walking around on my college campus, and I came in contact with a guy who was a Calvinist, and he was talking about the limited nature of Christ's atonement. And I blew up. I was furious. I thought, this is heresy. In fact, I actually set up a meeting with John MacArthur to meet with him, to tell him that there's heretics on this campus. Um, yeah, I was an arrogant well, little... Doctrine drink. police over here. And, and I just was... I, I didn't know that people believed it. I had never actually heard the doctrine of limited atonement uh, up to that point. And I was mm-hmm. raised in a church. And and this was a passage that I thought was a slam dunk. Man, this proves it. Come on, guys. Can't you see it? But it's not what it, it's saying at all. And it wasn't until seminar and I'm tearing apart the passages in Greek and working them through that when I saw what this was actually saying, everything just... Fell apart for me, and I'm like, "Wow, I was wrong. I was wrong, wrong, wrong." But go ahead and explain.
0: Well, first, the the meaning of savior is very broad, um, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so you have to ask and then answer the question: What does that mean in this this context, especially? Um, but note also that there's no contingency in the verse. You know, he says God is the savior of all, especially of those believe. He doesn't say if they believe. See, and that's what I was doing is I was reading into it. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, if they believe, but that's not it doesn't say he could be the savior of all. It's he is the savior of all. So how, in what way is he the savior of all? Not only the ones who believe that's the question.
0: Yeah. And so, so notice that there's a distinction between those who believe and those don't. Um, so, so belief brings about the salvation, right? So there's two types
1: of salvation, if you will. Now, the word savior can mean preserver, mm-hmm. restorer, um, and, and savior in the sense that we casual we usually use it. And I would simply say, yes, he is the savior of all. In one sense, he does preserve us. In fact, everyone right now is not struck dead because Christ did come and he did die and he is still gathering in his elect. But in a unique way, Timoth- uh, Paul is telling Timothy, He is a savior of the believers. So there's two groups. There's the ones who have him as a savior in one way. And then there's a second group who is the savior because they also are believers.
0: And they appropriate the fullness of what salvation means. Huge point. Yeah. To to read that one on the surface, you'd have to hold to some form of universalism. Yep. Right. That, I mean, this was Karl Barth, right? So he believes all people will be saved, but those who believe in Jesus in their earthly existence come into like a unique experience mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. But at the end, they're all going to be saved anyways, which is why he says, especially of those who right. believe, right. but that's a this region. A little <laughs> yeah. theology. Uh theology. Then the classic. Um, in fact, I got
1: thrown this um, not that long ago uh, out by a person. Uh, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Now, I'm going to emphasize that, the word you... Uh, with, and it'll make sense in a second, hopefully. Um, Not wishing for any, again, underline that, the word any. So you and any are underlined. To perish, let me read it again. But is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And again, see, he wants you. He's going to be patient. He's calling you. He's knocking on the door of your heart. He's doing all those things. Um, And so the assumption is that the you and the any, because they're just pronouns, you and any mean everyone, but it never says it. We just assume it. Um, Both of these words are pronouns, as I said. And so what you have to do is find that fancy word antecedent. You have to go backwards and figure out who are these you and who are these any, because that's basic grammar. Um, And when you go backwards, you're going to find out it's the word beloved. Beloved. And a beloved is always used of the believer.
0: Right.
1: And so I'm going to read it again, but this time I'm going to take the pronouns out. I'm going to replace them with their antecedent. The Lord is not slow about his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, his beloved, not wishing for any of his beloved to perish, but for all the beloved to come to repentance. That totally, mm-hmm. totally changes that yeah. passage. Um It's a great passage, again, for evangelism. Uh, The passage is then talking about the coming of the Lord, which is dealt with in verses 10 and following, in in other words, that word. But the promise is that before Christ returns, all who are his shall be saved. God is patiently waiting and waiting for the end to come, and he will not come until every single one that he gave to his son, John, uh, John's gospel, has been brought to salvation in its fullest sense because they have now appropriated it by faith. In other words, none of the elect shall be lost. That's the point. Right. Yeah. And if not, I my professor just looked at me bluntly and he said, Matt, listen. He says, if you're going to deal with this passage the way you are doing it, then all you're saying is that Christ, God can never end. He never can bring the end because yeah. at some point
0: yeah.
1: he comes and it's end. It's done. Right. And what about those who just got born? What about the guys who are mm-hmm. just thinking about it or, or whatever? What if we lose one? Well, he says if you just let the context work itself out, you realize that's not what it's getting into. Birth
0: mm-hmm. yeah. shattering for me. Uh, another one is first John 2, two. Now this one creates a problem for yeah. almost all sides, unless you're gonna be a universalist. It's a hard passage. <laughs> but first John two two, he says he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also Mm -hmm. for those of the whole world. Yeah. Now, this is perhaps the hardest of the problem passages.
1: And I I think that part of the problem that we do in these debates is we don't acknowledge that it doesn't mean that we don't have tough passages. Um, We just don't have to throw up our hands and say, "Well, this one now trumps every other passage that speaks with absolute clarity."
0: Yeah. And so it is dependent on how you can understand certain words in the passage. And we've already looked at some of these other problem passages that are typically given by people who are against Calvinism or not wanting to hold to it or something like that. Um, but we, we try to show how they're not essentially these rock solid examples of Christ's yeah. universal death. Yeah. Um, and so we wanna read this passage in the light of that as well. Um, so what one view of this is that the term world here is speaking only of the elect. So the world of the elect. Exactly. I the, don't like that The one. world, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, and they'll pick up on passages like John 11, 51, 52. Um, now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. Yeah, and they, they okay, apply sure, that yeah. to this passage. Yeah. And that's possible. Sure. Um, the other view is that in some way, there's a universal application of the death of Christ um, for the sake of the whole world. Um, they say that God's wrath has been appeased and here's the key in two different ways for all people. Um, and so this is part of, this is part of common grace or where common grace comes into the picture. Um, and so in our view, we would say this is the second, or this is the best way or better way to understand it. Um, the term for propitiation here has the sense of appeasing of God's wrath, of right. holding back God's wrath. Um, and so we would say that's what Christ's death did, but it's not the only thing right it did. Um, so you ask the question, you know, why do people live and still have life and breath and they're totally rejecting right, of God? Right, right. Um, well, because in some way Christ's death appeased or is holding back right now, temporarily the wrath of God against them. Um, and for what purpose though? Well, because he has purchased people unto salvation and saved them from their sin. And so God is enduring others, um, dealing with their sin and the rejection of him, um, so that there can now be a space for the elect to come into the fullness of their salvation.
1: So this is one of those, this this is the last passage we'll deal with tonight, but um, this one then shows, I think, a way, at least partially out of the the battle where we won't talk to each other. Uh, a person holds to a unlimited atonement versus limited, is that we tend to try to define these terms in either or. But the Bible uh, has a both and Um, the key point though is 99% of the passages are clear that it's limited to his elect or the people given to him by the Father to redeem and those shall come but in a broader sense this is the and part um, God's grace is also upon the un, uh, unbeliever, the non-elect, that they still enjoy his goodness and his mercies right now um, as he continues to gather his elect in. And I think, so if we stop talking either or and start seeing that there is a, an aspect, right, uh, but a small aspect of it, we can do well. With. Yeah.